Welcome to the Prosecutor's Perspective. This podcast is a law enforcement training podcast for Connecticut law enforcement and criminal justice professionals. The Prosecutor's Perspective will address various legal aspects and legal issues confronting law enforcement personnel and the criminal justice system today. Information presented as part of this podcast will include training, legal updates, and discussion of trending legal issues. Now, on with the podcast. Today's presenter on the prosecutor's perspective is State's Attorney Ann Mahoney. State's Attorney Mahoney is the lead law enforcement officer for the Wyndham Judicial District and has been a prosecutor for over 33 years. She has prepared witnesses for state, federal, and military trials, having tried over 50 cases ranging from motor vehicle violations to murder cases to jury verdict. She spent more than 20 years as a prosecutor in one of Connecticut's busiest urban jurisdictions and was selected state's attorney for the Wyndham Judicial District in 2016. State's Attorney Mahoney has received advanced trial preparation training by the National District Attorneys Association and National Institute of Trial Advocacy, and is currently the chair of the State of Connecticut Division of Criminal Justice State's Attorney Training Committee. Welcome to Law Enforcement Council Recertification. Investigation and trial preparation, the prosecutor's perspective, also known as preparing your case for prosecution. This is Wyndham State's Attorney, Ann Mahoney. Today's learning objectives are, one, how to write a good report. Two, why it's important to take written statements from witnesses. Three, how to properly have a suspect identified. Four, how to prepare for court testimony. And five, how to testify. Many of you have been writing reports, taking statements, identifying suspects, testifying for years. Part of this recertification is to review the basics. Who sets the system in motion? The police do. You see, hear, and receive information. Once you have that, you investigate. Then you document what you've investigated. You analyze your case. Is it a crime? If so, can it be proved, including who did it? Your reports and case files will include documentation of your investigation, reports, written statements, photographs and recordings, body-worn cameras, evidence, and CDs, whether surveillance or cruiser videos. Ask yourself, does your report answer the following questions? Who did what? To whom? Or what did she or he do? When did she or he do it? Where did she or he do it? How did she or who he do it? And why? The basic who, what, where, when, and how. For the more advanced, you'll also want to know what the elements of the crime are that you have the suspect listed as committing. For instance, in a larceny case, You'll want to know the value of the item the accused person has taken. For a sexual assault case of a minor, you'll need to know the date of birth and the age of the child at the time in question, as well as the suspect's age at the time in question, which is why you will need to put the date of birth of the suspect also into your report. The goals for your report include 
establishing proof of the crime, of every element, of every crime. Goals for your report are to be clear, concise, complete, and correct. Oftentimes, I read reports that are in chronological order that include details of how you were first assigned the case and everything that you did in the case. Those often show up in a warrant affidavit. All of those details are not necessary for the warrant affidavit. Those can be supplied in a supplemental investigative report, such as at what time you took photographs, who took the photographs. Obviously, anything that's exculpatory, such as the person was seen somewhere else at the time of the crime, is important to include, or any previous denials of the crime by the victim. However, a well-crafted report considers not just the who, what, where, and how, but also the elements of the crime. You want to write your report so as to enable the prosecutor to evaluate the state's case, its strengths, and its weaknesses. And the report is written to assist you in preparing for trial and helping you recall the details of the case. You will also want to get sworn written statements from your witnesses. Why are prosecutors so adamant about you taking a written statement? You may encounter a victim who at first blush does not want to give you a written statement, but if you go back a couple of days later after the event when the suspect is no longer around, they may be more supportive of giving you a statement. Written statements are critical to prosecutors because they help us cross-examine reluctant witnesses. Written statements also help prompt the victim or witness's memory the same way that your reports prompt your memory. And if we have witnesses who disagree with what they told you at the time of the crime, we prosecutors are able to use their witness statements to put into evidence before the jury so that the jury can rely upon them. This is why written statements are so critical in domestic violence cases. For practical reasons, they give us the who, what, where, when, and how. Can't share what we don't know. And memories fade over time for victims and witnesses. Stories change. For the attack on credibility, we need to have those. We also have to have those written statements to provide to the defense because the accused person has a right of confrontation in the United States Constitution, the Connecticut Constitution. The written statements help us refresh the recollection of the witnesses much the same way that your reports help us refresh your memory. They have to be these written statements from the witness's personal knowledge. If they give a false statement, we can charge any witness with doing that. This is why written statements are so critical to a prosecutor. Prosecutors are able to use a prior written statement of a witness, whether the witness is a witness the state, the prosecutors themselves have called, or a witness for the defense. In order to use such a written statement to give to the jury to rely upon in its deliberations, 
the state must prove, the prosecutor must show that certain basic requirements have been met. Those requirements were first spelled out in a case called State v. Whalen. So you will hear prosecutors refer to Whalen requirements. Number one, it must be a formal police statement, whether it's written or audio. The formal statement can include signed notes or signed pictures. For instance, when you're going through photo arrays and you have the witness write on the photo array, their handwriting is a written statement. Number two, the statement must show that the witness has personal knowledge of the facts that they are making in their statement. In other words, the biographical information must be correct. The witness must not have been under the influence. The responses in the written statement must be clear and rational. The third requirement under the Whalen requirements is that the statement must have been made under reliable circumstances. The witness must have sworn to the truth of the statement under penalty of perjury, which is why that boilerplate language at the end of your statement where you have the witness sign and you're actually swearing them and having a witness to that swearing is critical. The witness must verify the answers were accurate at the time that they gave the statement. Again, if you look at the boilerplate language, it's there. You also want to show that you have given the witness an opportunity to review that statement. The witness must be allowed to add or make changes at the end. You want to make sure that when you're questioning the witness, you watch out for leading questions that contain key facts. In other words, in the future, we don't want the witness to be able to say that the only reason those facts are in his or her written statement is because you told them the facts, that they didn't have personal knowledge of that. And in order for the prosecutor to be able to use this written statement, in general, the witness must be available to testify at trial, must testify at trial, and must be subject to cross-examination. The witness may claim at trial that they did not understand the written statement that you had them sign and swear to. They might claim that they were under the influence or had mental health problems. They might say that they didn't really see or hear the things that they claimed in their written statement, or there may be something at the crime scene that contradicts them, some piece of physical evidence in their written statement. They may claim that they were either threatened or forced to give the answers in their statement. So it's important for you to do a supplemental backup report with the written statement to discuss the time that the statement was taken, who else was present, who swore to the statement, the fact that the witness did not appear under the influence or if they were under the influence, you need to note that as well. Uh, you also need to note whether or not there was any claim of any physical injury or any other distress by the witness. Obviously, when you are interviewing witnesses, you've been doing this for a number of years, so you know that rapport is critical. Threats and coercion are the least effective way of getting information, no matter what they show on those TV shows. It's important for you to avoid 
police speak, such as the perpetrator alighted from the vehicle. When you're talking to the public, they expect you to use normal English. You are there to get information, not give information. It will be important for you to get background information, including the witness's cell phone number, and for you to establish that the witness has a clear mind and a sound understanding. When does that become a question? Sometimes there's language difficulties. For a recorded statement, you want to have a standard beginning. You want to lock the witness into what he or she saw or heard. If it's at all possible, let the witness start by explaining events in his or her own words. Then follow up with key questions bringing out details establishing why what their version of is the events is credible. Details such as who, what, when, and why, if possible. How the witness knows the parties involved in the case. When you end the recording, you want to make sure before you get to the end that you have asked the witness whether or not everything has been covered, whether or not the witness has something that they want to add or change, and how the witness felt treated that day. Years ago, there was a Chicago detective who, when interviewing suspects, always took a photograph of them smiling with their Burger King or McDonald's or whatever other food they got to show that it was not an abusive interrogation. Before the witness has left the building, you want to make sure that you've checked on the recording that, in fact, the interview was recorded. When you're interviewing a suspect, you want to think about legal challenges. You want to ensure that the suspect has understood their rights and questioning. I have seen in documentation reports from police officers claims that they read the suspect, the suspect's rights, and have watched video of that very interview and interrogation and seen that that was not done. So make it a practice to always do it whether you think the person can read or not, or at the very least, go back and watch your interview before you write your report so you are accurate in what you are writing. If you are incorrect about having read the suspect their rights, everything else you claim about the interview will be undermined. You want to ensure that the suspect was not forced or threatened into making any false admissions. When you are investigating a capital Class A or Class B felony, you must have an audiovisual recording of custodial interrogations, whether they take place at police stations, correctional facilities, or courthouses. If those facilities do not allow you to bring in such recording equipment, you must document such limitation.
you must ensure that the recordings are substantially accurate and not altered. And you must be sure that those recordings are saved. I'm sure some of you think that that's pretty basic, but it's a belt and suspenders situation where you cannot rely on someone else having done the saving if you yourself have not checked. You also don't want to find yourself in an interrogation where you are interrupting the flow of the narrative of your suspect. If your suspect is under the influence, you may want to let them sleep it off. Years ago in a different jurisdiction, a drunken defendant who had just killed a man turned himself in at the police station. The officers took him into a room where they allowed him to sleep it off. Eight hours later, they did the interview and got a confession. It would have been nice to have had a backup report that indicated when the videoing began and at what time the actual interviewing began. I still had to watch all eight hours in case the suspect said something in his sleep that was relevant, but it would have been very helpful to have had a backup report that stated the time the interrogation began. Backup reports are also helpful to indicate who is in the room during the investigation or the interview, if there's a break at any point in time, whether it's to allow the suspect to use the bathroom or not. If you are interviewing someone who is a suspect, let them give a narrative. You will begin your interview of them by building rapport. You don't want some long meandering situation. However, when you interrupt for clarification, you're interrupting the flow. Let the suspect tell their version. Then go back over what they've said. Take notes as they talk. When you go back over it, that you do before you start the typing. When you go through the typing, you can interrupt your typing to make sure that what you have just typed accurately reflect what the suspect has to say. It's important to note in your backup report whether or not you were wearing your firearm and what the policy is as to whether or not there's a firearm in the room. It's also important to identify any witnesses to the sworn statement that you will take at the end of the video. Having the video by itself is not enough. You may have five or six hours of interview of the suspect where you're rapport building and you're talking about things that are not going to come into evidence. It's very helpful for the prosecutor, instead of playing six hours and having to edit out four hours of the video, to be able to hand the jury a copy of the written statement that they can take back into the jury room with them as to what pertinent information the accused person gave about the crime. Not only have 
interrogations been changed because of the law. Eyewitness identification processes have been changed because of the law. How did that develop? There were a series of investigations of cases in which individuals were convicted and later turned out not to have been the guilty parties. Most of that came from DNA evidence exonerating people. What happened was when they looked back at those cases, they said, saw that oftentimes the fault lay in eyewitness investigations, eyewitness identifications rather, of the suspect who later became the convicted person. And those identifications were not accurate. So they have changed how we do these identifications. They separated out different categories, things that you can control as a police officer and things you cannot control as a police officer. So generally, when there is an eyewitness identification during the time of the crime, you are not in control of the lighting and distancing. You are not in control of what they call the exposure duration. The common sense notion is that the longer that a witness has been exposed to a suspect, the more accurate their identification will be. You do not have control over what happened during the crime in terms of weapon focus. If the suspect is flashing a knife or a gun, the witness, their ability to identify may be affected by their focus on that weapon because their focus on that weapon can diminish the exposure duration, in other words, the amount of time that they're looking at the suspect's face or body. You can't control the stress the witness was under. You can't control whether or not the suspect was wearing a disguise. And you can't control the retention interval, the lapse in time between the crime and when your witness is shown the array. Even though you don't control these variables, you still have to document the variables. The things that you can control are called system variables. So the things you cannot control are estimator variables, which have to do with the witness's ability to view the suspect. The things that you can control are called system variables because those are variables within the control of the system, meaning law enforcement. The more significant These are more significant, the system variables become more important, more significant, where a witness's memory of the events is weak. There are two types of these systems variables, interview techniques and identification procedures. Interview techniques refers to interviewing witnesses. Trained officers know you have to separate witnesses. You have to use a certain style of interviewing, cognitive interviewing. You want to ascertain the level of certainty or confidence of the witness. There can be significant error rates even with witnesses who are confident. But what happens is jurors attach great significance to the confident witness. So therefore, feedback to an eyewitness prior to documenting certainty, will contaminate the confidence statement. What do I mean by that? 
if the witness picks someone and you say something to them about their selection, like, good job, you are then contaminating their confidence statement, how certain they are that the individual that they selected is the right person. Eyewitness identifications take place in all sorts of circumstances. First of all, we have show-ups. Show-ups are one-on-one show-ups. Those are permitted. They're permitted because they take place soon after the crime, generally within two hours. Although they are suggestive, they are still allowed because it's an efficient way to capture the suspect. Or, if the person you have stopped is innocent, to let them go on their way. You have to strive for what they call non-suggestiveness. Don't do anything that unnecessarily draws a witness's attention to the suspect, like pointing at them. When you have multiple witnesses, it's important to separate the witnesses, to not put the suspect in a cruiser or a cell, to conceal any handcuffs that you may have on the person that you stopped, to not reveal any details of the encounter, such as, I found this guy when he was running away or over a fence, and to stop at the first positive ID. I've read many reports where officers take witness statements of multiple witnesses, and it's unclear which witness was the first one to be asked to look at the show-up. It's also been sometimes unclear what the circumstances of the show-up were. For instance, where the suspect was located at the time, where the witness was located at the time, the distance, the lighting, how long they looked at the person, whether or not the suspect was wearing the clothes that they were had on during the stop, or what shows up in their mugshot later on. Show-ups are one way of doing an identification. Another way that we do identifications is by preparing a photo array. There's a selection of fillers who generally fit the witness's description of the suspect, not who look like your suspect. The suspect's photograph should not stand out. Ensure the photo of the suspect resembles the suspect as they look at the time of the crime. There should be at least five, preferably seven, fillers. Photo arrays, there's discussion about whether or not they should be sequential or simultaneous. When they are simultaneous, you get a relative judgment. So our old-fashioned way of looking at photo arrays, where all of the pictures are on one single sheet, when they're done sequentially, one after another, you get an absolute judgment. So the research indicates that identification procedures, such as photo arrays, produce more reliable evidence when the lineup of photographs are shown to the witness sequentially rather than simultaneously. It's not clear to me how many of you have blind administration. In other words, 
using the double blind where you use a second officer. By blinded, they mean, number one, you have a folder shuffle, and number two, you have computer software, such as PowerPoint. For blind administrations, the key is that it protects the innocent from the influence of inadvertent cues from the detective. Hopefully, it will prevent the bad guy from going free. And blind administration helps prosecutors because it takes away a defense strategy and allows the prosecutor to show the jury that you, the law enforcement officer, have used the most modern reform standards. The post-identification statement of certainty. Ask the witness how certain they are immediately after the identification. Do so without using a numerical scale. Obtain the certainty prior to providing any information about the subject or case. The more you can avoid providing that information, the better. After the array, the pick itself is not the eureka moment. You have to continue the investigation. What else, what other steps might you undertake? A search warrant for the clothing worn by the suspect. Establishing the whereabouts of the suspect when the crime occurred. Clearly, you want to make sure that the suspect was not in custody for some other crime after they've been identified by your witness. And you want to examine and submit any forensic evidence. If your identification has come in part from information shared amongst police departments, such as you have a robber who has robbed in another town or jurisdiction, they have video or a license plate that matches, please print out that information for your investigative file. This may become critical information in a motion to suppress the identification prior to trial testimony before the jury. It will be important to show the basis for which you first establish a suspect before you then use that suspect's photograph in an array. You don't want to come across as lazy and always blaming the same individual for all the crimes in your area. You want to show that there was a connection. You want to prove that that connection came from another department, if possible. One of the most difficult areas that we encounter as prosecutors is when there are cases that rely on surveillance cameras from businesses and the police officers recognize a suspect. There was a case in which a defendant robbed a convenience store, and at the time of the trial, the witnesses were all police officers because they recognized the suspect, the defendant. They knew him, and they recognized his limp. The appellate court threw out the conviction because it felt the police officer testimony verged on expert testimony and overstepped the ken of the jury. The ken of the jury is the 
sort of the duties of the jurors in terms of making their own independent assessment of the evidence. So what are the basics with identifications from surveillance cameras? Number one, you want to get a copy of the video from the convenience store or box store. If you can't get the video itself, get the still photographs. If you don't know the subject, don't make the identification yourself. You want to show the photograph to someone who knows the suspect, a family member or a friend, before a probation officer. Because if you show it to the probation officer, then we're going to have to explain in court how the probation officer is not a law enforcement officer. When you interview the suspect, you can always show the suspect and get them to identify themselves. When it comes to making identifications with Department of Motor Vehicle photos, don't allow it. They're too suggestive. They become a photo array with one photograph. So avoid making that error. The main points for identifying a suspect are, number one, always get a description of the suspect first. Number two, read the instructions from the documents when it comes to the arrays. Number three, if possible, use double-blind administration. Number four, change to sequential arrays, which I think most, almost every department has done by now. Number five, obtain immediate statements of certainty after the identification. And number six, discontinue the use of composites or mug books. At this point, we have gone through three areas of this class so far. Namely, how to write a good report, which includes not just who, when, where, and how, although those are all very important, but it also includes elements. For instance, if you have a violation of a protective order, it's a superior report if you write in the docket number when the protective order was issued, by which court, when it's due to expire, what the prohibited behavior is, because it helps the prosecutor figure out, as well as the judge figure out when the judge signs the warrant, whether this is a civil order or a criminal order, and which statute applies. Another area in which superior report writing shows up is fugitive from justice warrants or reports. When you add in not just that the person is wanted for a felony in another state, but more specifically that they are wanted for a crime punishable by more than one year, because that's the language in the statute. So, so far we've gone through... How to write a good report, number one. Number two, why it's important to take written statement from witnesses, both the witnesses to the crime and the suspect themselves. It's very important to take written statements from them. Those written statements can be used by the prosecutor to do a direct examination and a cross-examination of critical witnesses. And if the witnesses change their stories, the prosecutor will be allowed to use that written statement to give to the jury to take back into the jury room for deliberations. 
with an accused person, the suspect, giving you an admission or a confession. Again, the written statement is something easier for the jurors to access than watching a lot of video, which will have to also be edited to take out anything that could be considered prejudicial to the defendant. The third section, which we just finished, was how to properly have a suspect identified. Again, if you can, have the suspect identify themselves from the video or have a family member or friend identify the suspect. If the victim or the witness knew the suspect and is giving you their identity, try to have recorded in an incident report or a supplemental report the basis for how they know the suspect. They went to high school with them. They work with them. They live around the corner from them. They know them as so-and-so's boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, brother. All that information is very helpful. It's especially helpful if the witness tries to backtrack later on because it's unique information that is not something that one would expect a police officer who doesn't know the suspect to know and put into the mouth of the witness. So it verifies that you're taking accurate information from the witness you're taking a statement from and that you're not putting words in their mouth that you're recording what they have told you, which is within their knowledge and not necessarily within your knowledge. The next two sections are how to prepare for court testimony and how to testify. It may seem rather obvious how to prepare for court testimony, but what's even more amazing is that people don't. People think, well, I'll just read over my report and that will be enough and I will be done and that will be sufficient. And quite frankly, it's not. It is very important that you review reports before meeting with the prosecutor to discuss being called as a witness to testify. Do not assume the prosecutor has all the reports you wrote regarding the case. You should obtain copies of your reports and bring them with you to the meeting to ensure the prosecutor has all your reports. In addition to the reports you are the primary author of, you should also collect any other reports in which you are the second signature affiant or witness statements in which you either witnessed or signed as the person who administered the oath. If you were a co-affiant on a search warrant, you should bring a copy of that with you, as well as the return regarding any related inventory. You should have copies of any chain of custody documents or receipts which you signed. Prior to the meeting, you should review any body-worn camera video, any interview or interrogation video. If you do not have the time to undertake the review before meeting the prosecutor, let the prosecutor know in advance. It's a simple as a phone call or an email. If you are the lead detective or investigator, you should have an understanding of both the chronology of the events that you investigated as well as the chronology of the overall investigative steps. Maintaining a folder with a copy of the trainings you have attended, any special certifications you've earned, and a list of cases in which you've been called as a witness will be helpful to you. If you have spoken with the defense attorney or investigator or the defendant or a member of the defendant's family, be sure to let the prosecutor know that information at your initial meeting. If you get contacted by the defense after that initial meeting, please let the prosecutor know. 
if you receive a subpoena to testify about the case from anyone other than the prosecutor, let the prosecutor know. For instance, you may be subpoenaed to housing court if a landlord is trying to evict your suspect from the location where a fight has taken place. The prosecutor will want to know because the prosecutor will want to know if you're being called to any other setting family court where there's a request for a restraining order against a father who's accused of physically harming a child, the prosecutor will want to know about that because if you end up testifying, that is material that the prosecutor will have to have for the trial, the criminal trial of the case. You want to ask the prosecutor in this initial meeting, what if any documents, photos, audio or visual material you will be asked to identify during your testimony or explain or comment upon during your testimony. Find out from the prosecutor if you will be asked to step down from the witness stand to show the jury evidence or to point to something on a screen and find out where those items will be set up. Find out from the prosecutor if you'll be asked to use a pointer or a laser. Request the opportunity to use any such item in advance of your testifying. Ask whether you will be asked the t to make time or distance approximations. You will want to ask to look at the courtroom where you'll be testifying in order to determine when you look at the courtroom where you are going to be testifying if there's any area in the courtroom that would help you with approximations as to distance. And as I said before, you want to ask about using the laser pointer because you don't want to be fumbling with that for the first time when you're on the witness stand. You want to come across professionally as someone who's in charge and knows material. You want to ask whether the courtroom will be cold or hot. You want to speak with investigators or inspectors as to where your weapon should be stored when you testify. Find out where the bathroom facilities are located, where you'll be instructed to park, Ask whether or not you'll be able to bring coffee or food with you. Most courthouses do not have Wi-Fi, so if you intend to make phone calls or do work on a computer while you wait to testify, your Internet access may be restricted. During the pretrial meeting, discuss with the prosecutor how your testimony fits in with that of the other witnesses in the case and the state's theory of the case. Ask about the defense theory of the case so you can better understand the nature of the potential areas you will be cross-examined about during your testimony. Discuss the weaknesses in the investigation. In other words, steps that were not undertaken based upon the information known at the time or the press of other issues or lack of personnel or miscommunication. Inquire as to whether or not there are additional follow-up steps the prosecutor would like you to undertake given your role in the case. Perhaps there were photographs taken of the scene at night, and those are not particularly clear. The prosecutor may need you to go back and take pictures of the scene at daytime. If the crime took place at night, clearly you'll be asked about that on the witness stand, but having the daytime photos may be more helpful to the jury to understand where certain things took place at the crime scene. If you have child care issues or other family matters or medical appointments or vacations, let the prosecutor know in advance. If you have been subpoenaed to testify in a different trial around the same dates, let the prosecutor know in advance. 
the more advanced knowledge the prosecutor has, the better they will able to work around your particular requirements and ensure that you have time to properly prepare and testify in the case at trial without having your mind clouded by other issues. If you have sight or hearing issues or difficulty sitting for long periods of time, for instance, if you have a back problem or recent surgery, tell the prosecutor in advance. If you need to take medication or food or water within certain time frames, let the prosecutor know so efforts can be made to accommodate you. If you have not testified before, try and observe an ongoing trial. Ask the prosecutor to have someone alert you as an ongoing trial that you can watch. It doesn't necessarily have to be one in Wyndham. It could be one in New London or Tolland or Harford or elsewhere. At the very worst, you could watch court TV. But you want to have some idea besides what you see on the television dramas where lawyers are allowed to give speeches that are not really questions. You want to have some sense of what a real trial is about. Find out who the judge will be for the trial and ask the prosecutor if there's something particularly you should know about how the judge likes to conduct his or her courtroom. All prosecutors will tell you that all you have to do is tell the truth. Be sure you know if there are any rulings by the court which would limit your testimony. Recognize that a jury must not be told that an accused person is being held in custody, as that would negatively impact the accused person's right to be presumed innocent and would lead to a mistrial if you testified about that fact. Clarify with the prosecutor whether you will solely be a fact witness or if you will additionally be an expert witness. If you will be asked to offer expert opinion, know what the topic will be in advance. That's where having the trial folder will help. If you're a drug recognition expert, you'll want to go back to your certification and a description of your coursework. If there are protocols, policies, or procedures that you deviated from during your investigation, Bring this to the attention of the prosecutor along with an explanation as to why it was necessary to proceed as you did. If you have any personal relationship with the defendant or defense team members, bring this to the attention of the prosecutor. Again, with each of these where I'm asking you to tell the prosecutor in advance, it's because it will allow the prosecutor to plan, possibly deflate any potential problems or show why they are not conflicts. The prosecutor will have to send a giglio letter to your employer, in other words, your police department, and may review with you material that has been or needs to be disclosed to the defense about your record. Disclosure to the defense does not necessarily mean that that information will be relevant for the court trial, but there should be a discussion of what that information is and how the defense may seek to employ it. Openly discuss with the prosecutor how you can cope with an argumentative or bullying defense attorney, how you can take steps to maintain your demeanor if you feel you are being personally attacked or unfairly or belittled or condescended to by a defense attorney. The last thing the prosecutor wants is for you to rise to that same level of misbehavior. Jurors will excuse it in defense attorneys. They will not excuse it in prosecutors. I'm sorry, in witnesses, and they certainly won't excuse it in prosecutors. So it's best if everyone keeps their head about them during the trial.
you want to make sure that you arrive on time and report to the prosecutor's office or some other predetermined location. In the pretrial meeting, you want to force the prosecutor to tell you what questions they're going to ask you and go over the exhibits so that you clearly know what's going on and whether or not they're going to want you to take notes on the witness stand. The final section is about how to testify. Again, all prosecutors will tell you all you have to do is tell the truth. Tell you to address the attorneys as sir or ma'am and the judge as your honor. You'll be instructed that if you don't understand or hear a question, you may ask for the person asking you the question to repeat it. Don't look to the prosecutor for help when answering the defense attorney's questions. Answer to the best of your ability. The prosecutor cannot help you and will make you look weak. If either attorney objects, stop and wait for the judge to rule. If you don't remember, say so. Don't guess. You may be allowed to refer to reports or notes. One way to avoid the I don't knows is to prepare in advance and review all of your reports. The weight of your testimony, how much the jurors rely on it, will depend on how you come across your credibility, and confidence is a key to credibility. Remember, the defense attorney has the right to ask you questions about your testimony after the prosecutor. It's called cross-examination. You want to listen to the question asked and answer only that question. If the question calls for a yes or no answer, then just provide that. If you want to explain further, you may say yes or no, depending on what is the correct answer, and say, may I explain? And the defense attorney cuts you off. The prosecutor, if it's important, will ask about you, ask you what it is that you wanted to explain and redirect. Be wary of questions asking you to estimate time or distance. If you make an estimate, make sure you're clear that it is an estimate. For instance, if the question is, Officer, how far away from the defendant were you when you saw the gun? Or, Officer, how far down the road was the Buick when you took the laser reading? It's a good answer to say a certain amount, but it's a better answer to explain how you got to that amount. I'll go over that a little bit later. Your reports must be complete and accurate, whether you end up testifying about them or not. On cross-examination, you want to avoid arguing with the defense attorney or insulting the defense attorney or becoming sarcastic. When it comes to theater in the courtroom, let the defense attorney do that you stay professional. On redirect, if there is something left hanging after the defense attorney is done, don't worry. Generally, the prosecutor will ask you about that. For instance, when you said, may I explain, and the defense attorney said no, the prosecutor will get up and say, what was it that you wanted to explain to allow you to give your full answer? So the basic format is a direct examination by a prosecutor, a cross-examination by the defense attorney, a redirect examination by the prosecutor, a cross recross examination by the defense attorney. This can go back and forth for a while. Generally, 
the topic area that the attorneys are allowed to ask you about should be narrowing. It's called scope. When you do a good investigation and you have good documentation, it makes it easier to give effective testimony. There's nothing worse than being subpoenaed to testify in a case that you know you didn't do your best job on. If you cut corners on the report, you can expect to be challenged when you testify about it, most especially about something you didn't write when you come into the courtroom. Many officers do very good investigations, but they do not prepare for their trial testimony, and they make a much worse impression than they should. There are standard techniques for cross-examining police officers for items that were left out of the report. For instance, if you say that the suspect swore at you and at the time of the trial your testimony is that they said, F you, the defense attorney will say, you didn't spell that out, you're just adding that on. You need to be able to have had that in your supplemental report if it's not in your general report. To review, you want to make sure that you have complete investigations and reports. You want to prepare for the trial to know your case. You want to communicate with the prosecutor prior to your testimony. You want to look good, sound good, and be professional. You want to be yourself and tell the truth. There are standard types of questions you will get depending upon the type of crime it is. If it's a driving under the influence or while intoxicated, the officer's observations oftentimes become the critical issue. So you can expect to be attacked a lot more in that case than in one in which you are simply responding to a scene, taking a witness's statement, and making certain observations. Remember, with regard to trial testimony, trial testimony actually begins before you even arrive at the courthouse. You should be appropriately dressed and aware of where you are going and when you are due there. As you approach the courthouse, you should know jurors may be in a variety of locations. So when you drive up and how you enter the court may be observed by jurors in the case in which you are about to testify, be mindful and courteous to staff, both the courthouse staff and the state's attorney's office staff. They are not the enemy and can actually be very helpful to you throughout the day. When you testify, it is important to convey information with confidence. You want the judge and the jury to find your testimony truthful, accurate, and reliable. Posture often conveys confidence, as does the rate, of, in other words, the speed of your speech and the volume of your speech. Find a way to be comfortable in the witness box so that you can speak into the microphone without being too loud. The courtroom microphones are there to record. Microphones do not amplify your voice in the courtroom. When you walk into the courtroom, the jurors will watch as you approach the witness chair. There may be wires or cords on the floor, so mind how you walk. Once at the witness stand, you will need to face the clerk to be sworn in before you are allowed to be seated. Court may be the last place where politeness and consideration are both still required. You must maintain your dignity at all times. You are there to provide information to the jury, not to entertain yourself or anyone else. A first step to good testimony is to have a solid understanding of the state's case and your role in it. 
Good preparation pre-trial will lead to success on the witness stand. Before you testify, you should set aside any notes you have brought with you unless instructed by a prosecutor to bring those to the witness stand. If you need tissues, a drink of water, inform the prosecutor in advance. Also, if the prosecutor plans to have you open any exhibits with a scissor, consider asking in advance for gloves to wear if the evidence includes any bodily fluid. You should have already practiced with any laser or pointer the prosecutor wishes you to use along with your testimony. Look the jurors in the eye when you are addressing them with your answers. Wait patiently for the judge to rule if there is an objection by either side about the question or your answer. Do not rush to answer a question when the defense objects. In other words, do not play favorite or games while testifying. If you do not understand a question from either attorney, state so simply. If the judge instructs you to answer either yes or no, do so. Do not elaborate. When judges ask witnesses questions, which they do so infrequently, they are trying to clarify matters for the jury. Answer only the question asked by the judge. If either side needs you to elaborate, they will ask you. If you tell the judge information the judge has not asked you for, you will have annoyed the judge. The content of your testimony you should have already discussed with the prosecutor. Do not lie about having met with the prosecutor. Your answers, whether to the prosecutor or the defense attorney, should always be truthful. The prosecutor should have discussed with you how the direct examination should flow in a way that jurors will be able to understand what took place in chunks of information. Many of you were trained to think of driving while intoxicated investigations as breaking into three distinct parts. Number one, the first approach, what drew your attention to the vehicle. Number two, the stop. What did you observe, hear, smell, notice once the vehicle was pulled over? And number three, the test, the driver's performance of field sobriety or other chemical tests. Your trial testimony may be broken down in a similar way so the listener can better understand what information you have to share. A long, rambling answer to what happened, a what happened question will not serve you or the prosecutor well with the jury. Remember, the jurors do not know what you know. They have watched a lot of television with inaccurate portrayals of crime investigations and courtroom testimony. It will be very important for you to listen to the questions being asked, no matter which side asks you. You may need to repeat or spell an unfamiliar word or explain any jargon in your testimony. Jurors, in general, like police officers. They usually view you favorably before you start your testimony due to your role as public safety officers. Do not lose that favorable impression with snarky or condescending behavior on the witness stand. Speak in normal English. If you must use an acronym, you will be asked to explain it. When questioned by the defense attorney, do not look to the prosecutor for the answer. Look at the defense attorney when you answer, unless you have been directed to look elsewhere. If the defense attorney appears to be reading from a report, you may ask to see what the report the attorney is reading from to ensure that the information given to you is taken in context. The defense attorney may not give it to you, but then the prosecutor probably on redirect, will ask if there's been a misunderstanding. The lawyer who has called you as a witness, sometimes it may be a defense attorney, must ask you open-ended, non-leading questions. The opposing lawyer, generally a defense attorney, 
can ask you leading questions. There is nothing wrong with leading questions from the cross-examiner unless the content of the question itself is inaccurate, which is why you must carefully listen to the full question before you attempt to answer it. There is information a jury should not know in nearly all cases, namely that the accused person is locked up pretrial or serving another sentence or has past convictions. None of this information should be blurted out before the jury. There may be additional information that the judge has ruled to be improper, which the jury may not be told. It is important that you understand these exclusions before you testify. You should also find out if there's a sequestration order. Generally, that is an order that prohibits, prohibits witnesses from sharing with each other content of their courtroom testimony. It is meant to protect the integrity of the trial and prevent collusion by witnesses. You must strictly follow this rule. If someone asks you about your trial testimony before the jury has arrived at the verdict, simply tell them that the sequestration order prevents you from commenting and the person should direct any questions to the prosecution team. The pattern of questioning is the attorney who called you as a witness will be asking you questions first. That's referred to as direct examination. If that attorney seeks to have exhibits, such as a document, a map, a video, or an audio, identified by you and moved into evidence for the jury's consideration, a few things will have to take place. You or a previous witness will have had to have authenticated the exhibit. In other words, state how you know the report or document or audio is the thing you have identified it to be. All exhibits should have been marked by the clerk with a small rectangular sticky, generally red, with a number labeled to it, such as State's Exhibit 1 for identification. The attorney will refer to the exhibit by this label. Usually it is red in color, and it's often put on the back page or corner of a bag or an envelope. The attorney will ask you what the item is and how it is you recognize it. The attorney should ask you if there are any limitations to the exhibit. For example, a diagram is not to size, photograph taken at a different time of day or season of the year. Not everything in the photograph was present at the crime scene. You'll need to explain those limitations. Once the attorney moves the court to accept the evidence, the exhibit, as full evidence and not simply for identification, then the opposing attorney gets to question the witness about the item. Sometimes you may be handed evidence for identification, such as your police report, and there will be no attempt to move it into evidence. But on the occasion, generally with a photograph or perhaps the sworn statement signed by the defendant, the prosecutor will be trying to move that into evidence. In other words, make it something, an exhibit, that the jury can consider when they come to their deliberations about whether or not the case has been proven. Once the prosecutor moves the exhibit, in other words, requests that the court accept it as fully as evidence, the opposing attorney, generally the defense attorney, gets to ask the witness questions about the item. So in other words, if you are testifying about a photograph and it's a photograph you did not yourself take, but you're familiar with what's in the photograph, you may be asked questions once the prosecutor has previously handed it to you as an exhibit for identification, asked you what it's a photograph of, how do you know if it's, a, is it accurate, how do you know if it's accurate, 
and they moved the court to accept it as a full exhibit, the defense attorney will be allowed to get you up and ask you questions. For instance, they may ask you whether or not you took the photograph. They may ask you if there's anything in the photograph that wasn't present at the time of the crime. They're allowed to ask you those questions because they're allowed to offer a objection to it being accepted as full. You don't have to necessarily have been the photographer if you can honestly testify that you observe what is in the photograph and honestly state that that what's depicted in the photograph is accurate. Many times, physical evidence such as clothing or weapons are contained within sealed boxes or bags. Since the item has yet to be introduced into evidence fully, when you're first handed it, it may be necessary for you to simply unseal the exhibit and look inside the box or bag without removing its contents from the container. In other words, you'll have to handle it in such a way that you can see the item, but the jury cannot. Until it's been established to be the item that you claim it to be and to be in its proper form and moved into evidence, sometimes the defense will not object to being the exhibit being a full item. If it's a weapon, there will have to have been a discussion. If it's a firearm, of putting a safety on it in advance of it being used in the courtroom. And also, there will be a discussion about whether or not, if there's any ammunition, that's entered at the same time. There have to be safety locks. Obviously, we don't want jurors accidentally shooting themselves, and we don't want anybody in the courtroom accidentally firing a weapon because enough safety efforts were not taken. So what are the takeaways for today? Generally, there are five takeaways from this podcast. Number one, the incident report or arrest warrant affidavit need to address the elements of the crime. Number two, jurors can use your written statements as the truth. So it's critical that those written statements be taken. Number three, eyewitness identification procedures must be followed unless a victim knows the suspect. Number four, you should create a trial folder. And number five, be calm, accurate, and prepared and professional when you testify. The prosecutors in Wyndham should always be willing to meet with you and help you understand the court processes in order to get the best and the most accurate testimony from you at trial. We can also meet you at your police department or invite you to come and watch a trial to go over things in advance. You should understand what mistakes were made and be able to describe why they were made. No one is perfect. Mistakes are made. There's no point in lying about them. There may have been procedures that were not followed for very good reasons but it's important that the prosecutor know what those are and is not surprised at them at the time of trial. You are doing important work every day, keeping the public safe. Most jurors want to believe that you will come in and tell the truth. There is no case, no matter how big, that is worth your career to lie about something. There is no mistake so serious that there can't be some way to address it without having to lie about it. Once you lie, your credibility is shot forever. And 
it's too important to tell the truth, not to get caught up in that situation. If you have any additional questions, feel free to call the prosecutors in Wyndham to ask questions or to send us an email if there's something you want to go over with us about testifying, about evidence, or about what you've seen on any of these TV shows where the prosecutor gets up and gives a speech and how to handle difficult questions. You need to use the same techniques on yourself that you use on the public when you meet with them and they are worked up about a situation, highly stressed about and feel like they've been picked upon. You're not in control in the courtroom. The judge is in control and the lawyers have some control over the questions. The only thing that you can control is your own demeanor and how you respond. And so you'll do all the things that you tell other people to do every day to calm themselves. You'll take a deep breath. You'll be patient. You'll wait your turn. You'll ground your feet. You'll look people in the eye. And you will deliver accurate, reliable information. It's not your job to win the case. It is your job to tell the truth and to make sure that the prosecutor knows what they need to know to be prepared for trial. We appreciate the effort you make every day to keep not only all the members of the public safe, but ourselves as well. And we know you are dedicated to doing a good job and to doing better work in preparing your reports. Very few officers became police officers to write reports. But writing reports is a critical function of the job if justice is to be met. We thank you in advance for all your help. Thank you for listening to the Prosecutor's Perspective. Any information or legal opinions presented as part of this podcast series are informational only, based upon the training experience of the presenter and may incorporate the creative work of others. Any creative work of others incorporated as part of this podcast are being used with permission or under claim of fair use under 17 U.S.C. 107. This presentation was presented pursuant to fair use guidelines, and any information and opinions presented as part of this podcast series do not constitute official policy of the State of Connecticut Division of Criminal Justice or any other law enforcement agency.